and welcome to the latest podcast episode from Future Medicine AI Hub. I'm Emma Hall, the editor of Future Medicine AI Hub. Today I'm joined by Luciano Floridi, who is a philosophy and ethics of information professor at the University of Oxford and also the director of the Digital Ethics Lab of the Oxford Internet Institute. His areas of expertise include the philosophy of information, digital ethics and the philosophy of technology. Thank you so much for joining us, Luciano. It's great to have you with us. Well, thank you for the invitation. Please, could you provide a brief overview of your career to date? Sure. Uh, in fact, I can probably start with some uh, not entirely breaking news, but you correctly described my job here at Oxford. But I'm leaving Oxford. I'm going to Yale in a couple of months, where I will be the new founding director of the Digital Ethics Lab or Center, actually, there, uh, DEC digital ethics uh, center and a professor of cognitive science so my life has been almost entirely spent here in in, in england as a student uh, graduate and then you know, first jobs etc i've almost entirely worked on the intersection between philosophy and computer science digital technologies i started a long time ago and i'll keep it short because we don't have much time but essentially about 30 years ago when i was a graduate student and then a postdoc I was strongly recommended not to work in this area. <laughs> I mean, my advisors, mentors, etc. Uh, they didn't see different age, different time. Those were the 80s. They didn't see all this digital revolution coming. But to a young person, it was quite obvious. And ever since, I've been working on conceptual challenges caused by the digital revolution and the impact on everyday life, on ethical issues, on politics, on how we socialize, how we understand the world that the digital revolution is causing. So it's been a remarkable investment at the time. I'm glad that I did it and it's super exciting. Anyone listening, join me. It's the future. Congratulations on your new job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Why do you think technology, specifically AI, requires regulation? I think technology has always required regulation, so to speak, since the first time we started going around with chariots and horses and uh, <laughs> causing uh, problems around the world. I'm from Rome, so if you look at the way uh, Roman roads are paved, etc., there was already a way of regulating traffic. So, But today, AI is causing a really different challenge. All challenges are important, but this one is as important, but slightly different. I see AI in general, and is a very much umbrella concept. It covers an enormous variety of technologies, sciences, practices, as a new form of agency. I disagree, and I hope not to be totally wrong, but we can meet in a few years. I disagree with anyone who thinks that this is a new form of intelligence. There is nothing intelligent in the machines that we're building. But there's an extraordinary and boundless ability to solve problems and take care of tasks at zero intelligence. And that's the miracle. I like to describe that as a new form of agency. It's not like a horse or a dog. It's not like you and me. And it's not like a river or a volcano. It's able to learn from the output, modify and improve its performance, even if it does that at zero understanding, comprehension, feelings, ends of goals. Now, this new form of agency is remarkably powerful and is in the hands of humanity. We have this fire like Prometheus, and we need to know what to do with it. There is an extraordinary new challenge. 
as such, it generates a lot of ethical, not only conceptual, new problems, legal issues. I'm optimistic about the opportunities to take advantage of all this, depending on which day you ask me. I'm not so optimistic. I'm rather frustrated about our ability to grab the opportunities. But if there's one thing I would like to see people stopping doing is all this hype about AI coming. This is science fiction. And it's also probably something we're going to cover in the rest of the conversation. Offensive towards human suffering. Every day, there are about 800 million people who have no access to clean water. And do we really think that like a small bunch of rich, spoiled people in the United States, normally in California, think that the real existential risk is caused by ChatGPT. That is ridiculous. Yeah, thank you. What is an example of a good digital health policy? Uh, there are several. And uh, of course, the first one that comes to mind, because uh, we're here, uh, I will probably invert the order once I'm in Yale is the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which covers remarkably well health-related data, privacy, et cetera. But of course, the other one is is from the States. Uh, I mean, the GDPR is, I think, was implemented in 2018, go by memory. But several years before, in 2009, we had the so-called HITECH Act, the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health. I have it in front of me. Is I can never remember how to spell out the, the High Tech Act 2009, which promotes the useful, valuable, human-oriented use of health data. Now, let me just quickly comment on this. Uh, you can see the two different philosophies here. The High Tech is, I mean, both try to do the best with health data. They're great policies. And if properly implemented, it's a big if, because I'm not sure they are, but if properly implemented in the mind of the legislator, this should make a huge difference in the value of the data we have in the health sector. But there are different philosophies. One is protective, more about don't do this, don't do that. The other one is more enhancing. Why don't you try to do this? And why don't you, you know, enable more? Now, the answer to your question, therefore, would be a mix of the two. <laughs> if we could have both uh, and say, look, there are boundaries, and it is important GDPR style to respect those boundaries. But there is also so much we can do with all this data. We cannot simply stop any initiative and say, well, better safe than sorry. With better safe than sorry, you will never leave your house. You will never cross the road. So a pinch of you know, the High Tech Act in it would be wonderful. And let me just close this with a final comment, which is some, some years ago, um, with my research group here in Oxford, we did a wonderful project, which was supported by Microsoft in time, on how people could be enabled to donate their health data in the same way as people can donate their blood, their body, their organs. Then COVID happened, and you know, we failed to implement this. Of course, you know, there were many other issues. But I hope once I go to Yale to start that again. I've seen legislators now picking up that particular idea, can't say that they, you know, I made that difference, or we did a difference as a research group, but we certainly contributed to, to that. That is the kind of world I would like to see moving forward, a world in which protection and opportunities go hand in hand. Well, thank you. What are the main challenges of applying ethics to digital health? <laughs> this is the usual list. That I'm not sure I can say <laughs> people listening to this podcast that haven't heard before. It's become a kind of a litany. The privacy and data protection, the informed consent, equality and accessibility. I mean, we have heard this a million times. Certainly someone like me. Also because these are not specific 
either to the sector or to the specific technology. You could have the same list if we were talking about, say, the retail industry and platforms. So it's the digital and the impact of the digital that is generating all these issues. But let me stress maybe a point that perhaps people who are listening haven't heard a million times. So I, I won't waste your time and there's on, on privacy or you know, algorithmic bias. I mean, I know you know, I know that everybody who has clicked on this podcast has heard this uh, so many times. But I'd like to stress a point that maybe, you know, is related to what uh, we started with. The digital revolution is causing an enormous amount of you know, issues, challenges, opportunities, etc. But it's also profoundly dividing the world into winners and losers. And that I find, again, not just AI, not just in the medical sector, but the medical sector is particularly fundamentally important. I don't care so much if the digital divide means that I have better access to shoes. Okay, that's not nice, but I can live with that. But if the digital divide means that I, because I belong to a certain kind of social class, country, income, so et cetera, bracket, and so on, I have access to a certain kind of health, digitally supported AI run, and the rest of the world, which I'm talking about 90%, 95 they don't even know that that exists. That is disturbing profoundly. So, and it's not going to be solved tomorrow. It's not like, oh, magic wand, or the philosopher says, so goodbye, no, and problem solved. But we need to focus on that. So by all means, the usual problems from privacy to algorithm bias are fundamental. But let me say something almost controversial. I'm a privileged person because I live in a country where I can have algorithmic bias compared to people who live in places where they wish they had algorithmic bias because they are not even close to not having sniff the digital revolution. That is a disaster. And by the way, for anyone listening, I'm not talking about north, south, rich, poor. I'm talking about no, someone here in the periphery of Oxford, which is one of the poorest uh, areas uh, in the country. And we're talking about Oxford, UK. And people there have no idea. I mean, they're completely uh, digitally illiterate. They have no access to the resources, et cetera, et cetera. So the digital divide is not no, country, country, or north, south. is also at home. As long as we do not address that, then the challenges that we mentioned before are almost a privilege for those who are exposed to that kind of technology. I hope my message is not mistaken. I'm happy to have my privacy, my info, you know, all protected. But just think about those who are not even close to having that problem. In a way, we're almost lucky to have that problem compared to those who then don't never even had a sense. Remember, the 800 million people who never have uh, or don't have these days access to clean water. Their problem is not informed consent. The CEO of OpenAI recently appeared in a Senate hearing on AI regulation. Do you think this is the beginning of stricter digital governance? Oh, we would be way past the beginning. Altman, uh, the CEO of OpenAI, is as many of those people stuck in their bubble and they have no idea what's happening in the rest of the world. I mean, it's the news today, for example, that Australia has started, uh, literally today, a process of developing their own legislation about AI. But the AI Act in Europe has been going on for years. Now, if you go all the way to the Senate, if you start you know, blathering around the world, you no know, signing letters, you need to legislate. Wouldn't you just ask Wikipedia? <laughs> a kid in the ro- on the road say, is there anything going on before I make a fool of myself? Well, that would be my recommendation to these people. Uh, before you go out and say you need to legislate us, just be reminded that 
we are <laughs> and we have been you know, creating this legislation we as society as humanity for years is coming and depending on when you are listening to this podcast it might have already happened by the time you probably download and listen to this podcast in the future because it's a matter of weeks so it's already happening also in the states there have been at least a couple of bills and there's more you not know, going on so the point is we are already almost at the end of the process of having a robust legislation and you know, legal normative framework on ai so what is the message here not only that these people, when they speak, they are uninformed. Well, no, it happens. No, I'm a philosopher. Uh, it's important to know that you don't know. So maybe they should know that they don't know. But I think there's more in it. And the more is about being misleading, trying, as a matter of fact, to generate confusion so that what they don't want is going to happen later, exactly legislation. The first reaction that Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, had when he learned a week ago or so, that's Reuters, about the AI Act, because the AI Act now is making some noise, is finally coming to uh, be implemented, was, oh, if that passes, we're walking out of Europe. That is legislation that we cannot cope with. Well, that shows a lot of hypocrisy. So once you start removing the hypocrisy, the disinformed aspects, the misleading, what remains is a lot of PR, a lot of noise and distraction. And that's the last point I want to stress. If all this were just a distraction and um, noise, we could cope with that. It's more than that. It's irresponsible because it means calling attention to something that is already happening, as if it didn't, shouting about no, risks that are not to be seen anywhere in any science and technology that we are developing today, the zombie coming, so to speak, Star Wars, etc. Meanwhile, hoping that with all that noise and fog, the real issues that we just described will disappear. The digital divide, the informed consent, the misuse of data, the bias in the algorithms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, that is a poor, but so far, apparently quite successful strategy. They have managed to distract the conversation and lead us into an area where, you know, discussing about science fiction scenarios and a legislation that one day will come. It is coming today, and they should comply. I hope they do their homework. Thank you. In your opinion, do you think we will ever be able to control AI? That question, if I may say so, it's kind of loaded because we are controlling AI. We build AI. We are in complete control of AI. There's nothing not to be in control of. It's an engineering product. It would be like asking, will you ever be in control of your car? Now, I understand that there's a scenario in which I lose control. Maybe I'm drunk. <laughs> Maybe my car is a level three or something autonomous car. Maybe I leave it on top of the hill and I forget the handbrake. There are lots of scenarios in which I lose control of my car, but the bottom line is that it is my fault. <laughs> so once again, when you hear people talking about, oh, will AI ever become out of control? They are already selling the point that, well, if anything goes wrong, it will be AI's fault. No, never. Never means not now, not tomorrow, not in any future. If anything goes wrong, will be humanity's fault. It will be like blaming your car for having run over someone. Hard to justify in any possible court. So let me rephrase that, uh, that question. When we will lose control of AI, whose fault will it be? find the people who were in charge. And those people are well-known. Companies, industry, maybe users like me, et cetera, et cetera, as we know. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's all from me. 
Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Luciano. It's been really insightful to hear about digital health ethics and how we can responsibly regulate AI. Thank you also to our listeners. And if you would like to hear any more podcasts like this, please head to fmaihelp.com.